0: Hey everyone, it's Mike Jordan-Lasky. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to share a quick word and let you know about a new Facebook group we've started at the Jesuit Conference. It's called The Refectory, Jesuits and Friends Online Community. The hope was for us to have a place where we could all come together in this crazy time and share some Ignatian spirituality resources and prayers and We'll lead a virtual retreat through the group. So if you go to jesuits.org refectory, that's R-E-F-E-C-T-O-R-Y, you'll be rerouted right there to the Facebook group. That's jesuits.org refectory. Uh, the word refectory is this traditional word that Jesuit communities and other religious communities have used for the dining room. And I know in the refectories I've been to at Jesuit communities, they're always places of fellowship and great conversation and real warmth. Just thought that that was a good name to kind of get at what we're trying to do with this Facebook group, a place for us to come together in this crazy time. So, again, that's Jesuits.org slash refectory. Hope to see you over there. And thanks so much for tuning in for today's episode with Dr. Chris Belido. Oh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the AMDG Jesuit podcast. I'm Mike Jordan Lasky. Uh, Happy to be joined today by an old friend, uh, Dr. Chris Bolito, who's a historian. Uh, He does a lot of really uh, fascinating work. I'll let him tell you about himself now. So go ahead, Chris, take it away. Introduce yourself to our folks.
1: Sure. So uh, Bronx, born and raised, went to uh, Spelman High School, Cardinal Spelman High School and NYU undergrad, where I studied not history. I was a muggle. I studied journalism and uh, political philosophy and classics and religion Um, and uh, did some teaching in high school, was a Jesuit novice. Briefly, uh, I still see the world through Jesuit eyes. And uh, then went to grad school at Fordham, where I did a doctorate in medieval history under the now late, great, uh, Jesuit uh, medievalist uh, Louis Pascoe. And so uh, I've done some editing for Paulus Press. I do some editing for Brill. But my uh, day job is that I'm a professor of ancient and medieval history at Kane University in Union, New Jersey, which is part of the state system.
0: One thing I've loved working with you and reading your stuff is that while you are an academic and in that world, you also do a lot of work with parishes, with just kind of folks who might not be as you know, kind of trained in, in history or as academically focused as you are, able to kind of speak to that wide range of audiences. Um, which is why I thought it would be great to have you on to do some historical perspective uh, for us who are not experts. Myself, I not not an expert um, by any stretch of the imagination, but interested to to hear a little bit uh, of your perspective as a medieval historian especially on like reflecting on the black death and the faith community impact of the black death and the response. And then maybe the, how we see some parallels from that time, that kind of that crazy unprecedented time to today, which again, we're we're caught up in this um, uncharted time uh, here in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So I don't, yeah, if you want to just take it away uh, at first Ah, uh, with maybe a little like one hundred and one, a little black death sure. one hundred and one, for those of us who uh, again haven't been studying up recently.
1: Sure. So um, I should say before I begin that I really do enjoy opportunities like this. I did not get a PhD, so I would write a book that five people would read. Um, I really do believe that we need to put history or whatever our fields are, uh, chemistry or law, um, at the service of of a broader community. So. Um, Not glad that we are in this situation, but given this situation, glad to have this opportunity. So um, the Black Death is the bubonic plague, which occurs in the middle of the 14th century. Um, But the reason that the Black Death hit so uh, hard had a lot to do with the circumstances before it. So if you look at, you know, I think everyone is just amazed at the numbers that we're hearing in Italy. And why are those numbers so high? It's because Italy had the percentage-wise, second-largest elderly population in the world, Japan being the first. So that's very important for the story of the Black Death because the the, set, the decades before the Black Death were absolutely horrible decades in terms of climate and in, therefore in terms of nutrition and in terms of health. So when the Black Death hits, it's hitting a population that is not particularly healthy um, at the moment. And so you had this large population that had grown and then got very sick. And then at the worst possible moment, that's when this Black Death comes in. So from about the year 1000 to the year 1300, Western Europe's population grows 250%, 250%. So England had 2 million people, now 5 million people. France, 6 to 14. Germany and Italy combined from 4 million to 11 million people. Um, And that's because there was it was kind of a greening. It was kind of a warming trend. Um, And uh, so that allowed uh, larger uh, harvests. And when you have larger harvests, people are eating better when they're eating better. Particularly women are having um, more successful pregnancies. They're not dying in childbirth. Children are living past the age of um, 10. And how do we know that, by the way? We know that from baptismal records and tax records. And I'm just talking here about Western Europe. We have to remember that the Black Death is a worldwide phenomenon. If you describe the world as Europe and Asia at the time, it actually begins in Asia, travels along the Silk Road, does a devastating job um, uh, wiping out Muslim populations in, uh, in the Middle East. And that's before it gets to Western Europe. So most of what I'm talking about is Western Europe. So given that, 40% of the population of Western Europe was under the age of 15. And here's the number everyone hears. About 35%, about a third of the population of Europe is going to die from 1347 to about 1360. Two-thirds of that number, so about a third of the population, two-thirds of that number were people under the age of 15. And that is why Europe takes 300 years to recover its population from before the Black Death to after. It's because the population that could have replicated, that could have had babies, was wiped out in huge, huge numbers. And this is very early, but apparently, with, as with COVID-19, it was hitting men more than women, men more than women. So these, these numbers... Add up literally to uh, an, a, a devastation on the population. That's not just a one-shot deal. And so the climate had been good from 1,000 to 1,300 agricultural expansion. That made meant that a lot of people had moved into cities. We talk about the commercial revolution of the 1200s. What happens in cities? Density of population. This is why Detroit, Chicago, uh, LA, Seattle, and New York City are in such dire straits because you have more people there, less distance, greater possibility of the virus um, jumping. And then everything kind of went downhill from 1300 to 1500. I tell my students everything that could go wrong does go wrong. The Black Death, the Hundred Years' War, the Great Western Schism, when there are three um, popes. So from 1300 to 1500, everything gets colder and wetter. There's pack ice. That's moving around. England used to have a small wine um, industry. It, it gets wiped out, never to be recovered, because it doesn't have the longer months of warmth that you need. Flooding in Northern Europe impedes the textile trade. And as if things weren't bad enough, from 1313 to 1322, you had heavy rains alternating with drought. We have very good records for this. So, what does that lead to? Poor harvests, lower nutrition lower nutrition means that your great your your immune system is going down and then bang comes the black death at just this point so it spreads from the far east to the middle east it hits italian cities first and then it rips through continental europe and basically that first that first phase is 1347 to 1351 but we find it in records in china going back to about 1330s hmm. um, and then in muslim populations in the middle east in the in the 13, um, in the 1340s. And it's important to remember, and and here we are. So, you know, we're in March, April of 2019 and we're all listening to people like Dr. Tony Fauci say things like the virus determines the timeline. I just learned by the way today that not only was uh, Tony Fauci, Jesuit educated at Regis in, in uh, New York City but that he went to Holy Cross where he majored in classics. So see, studying the humanities can help.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. So if the, you think about... Uh, oh, go ahead, Chris.
1: It, just to say, so on that point, the Black Death came back every 15 or 20 years for mm-hmm. 50 years. And then it came back every 35 to 50 years for 200 years. So what we can see is that people are building up an immunity to it. And so when it hits, it doesn't hit as bad. But if any of you know Samuel Pepys' diary, he has the Journal of a Plague Year, which is 1665, and then the Great Fire of London, which is 1666. That's the Black Death. That's Hmm. the plague. It hits in Marseille in 1720, and the last large recorded version of it, of the same one, was Hong Kong in 1894.
0: Hmm. So if we go back to the 14th century uh, in Western Europe, uh, you can't talk about that time, that culture without talking about the church. Right. So before the Reformation, the Catholic Church is, is it has a huge amount of power. What was going on in the church there? What's the church? So maybe what's the church like? What's the church response kind of in the middle of all that?
1: Right. So it hits at a, at a lousy moment for the highest levels of the institutional church, because in 1347, we're in the Avignon papacy. There's still only one pope, um, but he's in Avignon. There were some good reasons for him to go from Rome to Avignon, but those good reasons ended and they didn't go back. You know, if you could be in Rome in August or on the French Riviera in August, where would you be? Um, and so uh, they the popes kind of stay there. And the Avignon Papacy is not as corrupt. Recent studies are saying it was not. It was corrupt. It was no really more or less corrupt than any large institutions at the time. But of course, this is the period of time where Petrarch refers to the Babylonian captivity um, of of the Papacy and and paints it as this totally you know decadent bureaucracy, which, as I said, recent research um says says that it wasn't if you're really interested in this the the best book on it was just uh written by uh, uh someone named ulm Falkild, uh f-a-l-k-e-i-d so put that on your list so you're right mike so the air in which people breathe in western europe is very very religious it's jewish it's muslim but obviously predominantly christian um as well and uh christianity uh you know is, is also dealing with this these questions of faith and reason. The universities have, have really um, exploded in the 12th and 13th century, uh, uh, often because of Muslim learning. And so there's a very interesting contrast religiously and scientifically. So if you look at the Muslim accounts in places like Damascus and Cairo um, and eventually Cordoba um, and, uh, and a town that is a city that is now in, ran called ifsan these were these were like the major centers of learning Um, the the muslims are taking a very very uh scientific approach they're trying to figure out what's happening with bodies and things like that whereas uh, the pope in 1348 sends a letter to the university of paris medical faculty and says what's going on and this is their their um determination of why the black death occurred that in the east, somewhere in the east, there had been a war between the sun and the sea in the Indian Ocean. And this led to a conjunction of planets on March 20th, 1345, within Aquarius. And Saturn, representing death, were aligned with Jupiter and Mars, representing air and pestilence, And one group of people said that this produced hot and dry air. And other people said, no, this produced warm and humid air. And that was their explanation. A wholly unsatisfying explanation, I might add. So the next thing that people say is, this is a curse from God. There is a reason why this is happening. And we right now are reading all types of reasoning for it. And we're hearing all sorts of things like it is, God's vengeance for fill in the blank of the group of people that you hate the most. Um, And there's a lot of scapegoating that's going on. So basically, religiously, what's happening is you get this split right between people who say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. And there's all sorts of accounts of those. And then another group of people, zealots, small but influential, called the flagellanti. Um, in uh, in Italy and Germany more than in any other places. and these flagellante believe that the way that this is a punishment from God and the way to uh, get God's forgiveness is to basically strip, whip themselves, walk around uh, Europe giving these these great penitential, you know frightening, Sermons, Of course, ironically, what are they doing? They're, they don't know this, but they're bringing people together in close proximity. There's blood and, in some cases, feces and, and mucus flying around, which is doing what? Spreading the damn disease, uh, asking God for forgiveness. And this religious zealotry, of course, leads to scapegoating. And there are a couple of levels of that scapegoating
0: so the i want to talk a little bit more about these flagellanti for a second so you're talking about like roving groups of like a of dozens of people men yeah, most, yeah. mostly
1: men um although they were followed by groups of women uh the men were naked or nearly naked uh wearing loincloths and uh whipping themselves with cords you know that would have pieces of uh, iron on the back in imitation of the 39 lashes of jesus now I should also say that at this time, from about the 12th century on, there is a tremendous identification with, with the broken body of Jesus, with the suffering Jesus, with the human Jesus. The reason many of your, uh, our listeners here will be familiar with the uh, heresy of Arian, which went back to the Council of Nicaea in the 300s. And Arian basically said that Jesus was not quite divine. Jesus was Superman. Um, and so all of the depictions of Christ from 300 to about 1000 fought back Arianism by showing Jesus as God, as very mm-hmm. stern, as very remote. If you've seen Byzantine images of this separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, by, by about 1100, that is all gone. And there is this upsurge um, in, in a vita apostolica, in an evangelical awakening, not evangelical in the meaning of 20th century Political sense, but uh, people embracing the gospel and really identifying with the Jesus who suffered. So this is a very appealing Jesus during this time—a Mary who buries her son, and so there are lots of depictions in art and in music of this time about the the Stabat Mater, right—the the mother who stays, the mother who stands at the foot of the cross. So there's a lot of consolation. You know, we talk, we always, we often talk about about extremists, right? Because you know, it's good gait, it sounds good. Um, but these eat, drink, and be merry and the flagellante were uh, probably smaller groups. I can't quantify them. I don't know, 10, 20%. But as we do today in politics, we spend all of our time in the 10, 20% on either end. And, and those of us in the middle get um, squished by that. But there was a tremendous amount of consolation that was taking place. Um, because Jesus had suffered as well. Jesus had cured lepers, lepers. Jesus had been with the outcast. And very early on, this was considered a disease of the poor and prostitutes because the poor, right are living in ghettos. Um, and if you're going to say that this is a disease of sex or prostitutes are getting, the poor and prostitutes are getting these diseases as this disease at higher rates. And more rapidly, not because they're poor or prostitutes in say, but because of their living conditions as well. So for instance, if you went, if you were a rich person and you went from a known plague area to another area and you were rich, you would often be let in to the non-plague area. But if you were poor and went from a poor, from a plague area to a non-plague area, you were not let in. So money was definitely buying, they thought money would buy, um, would buy safety. So there was a big um, targeting of the, uh, of the poor, of course, in a way that's, you know, that's, that's disgusting. If, if, so I bet a lot of people have read Boccaccio's Decameron and they say, oh, isn't this a nice set of, set of uh, fun stories like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales? Well, Boccaccio's Decameron takes place because there are 10 rich people who are in a villa telling a story a day for 10 days, and that's how you get the 100 uh, stories of the Decameron. Well, those rich people have a second home to go to. I'm speaking to you from New Jersey, and there are lots of people in northern New Jersey from Bergen County who have houses down on the Jersey Shore, particularly place called Long Beach Island in LBI, and they are fleeing the North to go to an area that they think is less crowded and it is less crowded. Although the people down on LBI are saying, don't come here because we don't have the number of hospitals, doctors, nurses um, to take care of it. But that, that, that is an exact, an an absolutely exact parallel. So one of the, one of the uh, best defenses against the plague was the Italians said you should take three pills and these three pills in Italian were called uh, Chito, Longe, and Tarde. Run swiftly, Chito. Go far away, Longe, and return only after a long time. Stay away, Tarde. Well, you can't do that if you don't have a villa to go to. Hmm.
0: So again, some, some of those parallels. And you mentioned a few levels of scapegoating, including like a Jewish community would be always fast yeah. to be scapegoated, right? Right. Um, so how, how did that how did that look? What did that yeah. uh, look like?
1: Right. So remember that we're also at the period of time where the Crusades have kind of run their course. The Crusades have a bunch of phases, but the big um, phase of the Crusades is from about 1095 to 1300. And during that period of time, there was tremendous scapegoating of the Jews because your Euro- Western European Crusaders are saying, we're going to go all the way to the Holy Land to take it away from the infidel, the infidel here being Muslims. But, of course, Muslims called Christians the infidel, the unfaithful ones. And as these Christians are moving, especially along the Rhine and the Danube in the early um, uh, 12th century, the 1100s, they're saying, well, there are infidel among us, right? Because the belief at that time is that the, the Jews killed Jesus. And all the Jews at the time of Jesus and every Jew since the time of Jesus bore the blood of Jesus on their hands, teaching that too many Catholics and too many Christians don't realize was repudiated by Vatican two in 1965. Um, but to go back to, to 1400, there, there were always these pogroms against Jews and they went all the way up to 1300. So another set of pogroms is not surprising. And so, uh, a couple of stories are told one, uh, lies are told about, about the Jews. One is that, um, There's something called the blood libel, whereas Jews would, uh, the charges that Jews would take virgin boys and girls, kill them around the time of Passover and make matzah with their blood and then take that body and throw it into a well. And as the body decomposed, the water would become brackish and poisoned. And so there were many who believed Jews were spreading the Black Death through this method connecting it to a pre-existing what was called a blood libel. Um, and so that was one version of it. Um, the other is remember that Jews pray together in a minion, right a group of ten. And so Jews also were living either officially in ghettos or unofficially in neighborhoods and because they tended to be t- more packly, uh, uh more tightly packed in density, they were dying at a higher rate. Okay. So now it's a poor disease. It's a prostitute's disease. It's a Jews disease. Hmm. That was another version. Now, what's interesting in Spain is that, is that the, the, while the Muslims die in very, very large numbers in the Middle East, um, it dissipated, um, and was less across Northern Africa and then into the basically the lower part of modern day Spain from about Toledo down, um, and uh, there's some speculation there that that was because um, Muslims uh, will uh, wash before they pray five times a day. Um, that that's a it's a theory that really doesn't work because the Muslims in the Middle East were washing and praying five times a day as well, but dying at larger rates. And of course, um, some of the more observant Jews would also be washing before every meal. So you know, there's still confusion um, about about what this black death uh, was. But but certainly it was a cause of religious fundamentalism that I think we're seeing today, religious blame that I think we're seeing today, um, and this uh, scapegoating.
0: Yeah, which is frustrating because we've come like a bit of a ways scientifically <laughs> yeah. medically since then, right? Like in theory should uh, be wiser, but not necessarily seeing that play out everywhere. To well, oh, go ahead, know, yeah.
1: But part of that is this whole question as to whether or not we should be gathering in prayer um, physically uh, to go to go to mass. Um, And, uh, you know, there are some and and, uh, you know, this is fact. I'm I'm not I'm not uh, giving you a political opinion. If you if you read. You will find that some more on the political and religious right than on the political and religious left are saying, oh, no, you can't take the Eucharist away from us. We have to be physically connected to the Eucharist. You know, there are ways of having masses where every, you know, in a in, a, in an arena where there are uh, seats that are placed, you know, socially distanced five or 10 feet away. You know, I, I don't quite frankly, don't see how any of that um, would work. It, it, it's rather interesting that many of the people who are saying, you know, we need the Eucharist, we need the Eucharist, don't really care that people in the Amazon don't have the Eucharist, um, which is something that came up at the last Amazon Amazon Synod. Um, and and so, to me, I, I it, it seems it seems to me that Jesus is going to be with us in whatever way Jesus wants to be with us, and uh, we have to be. Uh, open to that. And to say that Jesus isn't with us because we're not receiving the Eucharist. Yes, the Eucharist is the bread of life. But I think that Jesus would rather us have a spiritual communion than die. Um, And and the other thing that's interesting is that monks, nuns, and friars in the the Middle Ages, in the Black Death, died at hugely uh, higher rates for two reasons. One is monks, nuns, uh, friars are traveling around, but of course they come home Um, at night, monks and nuns are uh, cloistered, they're living closely together, right? So if you think today about nursing homes, you know, once a case gets into a nursing home, you know, that's some bad news, right? Because it's a vulnerable population physically, um, and, and the disease kind of rattles around within that communities. The other reason that monks, nuns, and friars died at higher rates is that many of those monks and nuns were released from their cloisters to go out and to serve the poor. And so these women and men gave their lives um, to, serve, to serve the poor. Now, we must raise the question, were they at the same time spreading the disease unknowingly? And that's a big question that people are saying now when people are saying, you know, uh, where are these priests? How come they're not out? Well, if they go out, They may, in fact, spread the disease. There's no easy answer here. And I don't have the answer. I'm not an epidemiologist. But what I'm what I'm trying to do is nuance some of the some of the absolutist answers that are or or ideas that are that are going out there.
0: You have seen now. I mean, I think they've reported like dozens of priests, in particular, who have served as chaplains who have died in, in northern Italy, um, in the Lombardy region. Uh, people again who have been ministering to the sick and then have died, like through through that witness, which there is something uh, inspiring about that. While also, I think. I'm moved by clergy who are and and lay leaders and others who are using this time to say, hey, you know what? Like we can't physically be together, but the church has never been about the building. We have these tools now that we can still do some of this connecting uh, electronically. I've seen like drive-by confessions. I'm not sure about that, but uh, people are kind of doing that from their car in some places, or uh, again gathering with small groups or having mass streamed on the internet. Um, Places, you know, that might not have ever done that before are saying, hey, we have to kind of lean into this and, and learn. And maybe this will be a change that comes from this, that like, hey, as a church, we're better with uh, technology and, and some of these tools. Um, wh- what were like some of the big changes you, you could see or chart like through, through the, the Black Death like, in the church? Or again, obviously, all these numbers are, are lower, but like how was Europe different or how was the church different uh, afterward? Um, knowing that, right. again, there's a long tail on this.
1: You're right, there is a long tail on this, and 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 we don't know, but I, I think one of the things that happens is that the, the church really does become a church of the poor um, all the more because of these, you know, everyone is going to find a story that says, Father so-and-so baptized my kid, but Father so-and-so didn't bury my kid. And that story is going to be told in 1348, and it's going to be told in 2020. Um, but the overwhelming evidence is that religious ordained and not ordained, vowed and non-vowed religious people gave their lives to help others at huge rates, huge rates. And so it's really a very interesting moment for ecclesiology. And I think that some of the people and, and who are more of a more traditionalist bent um, will say, well, we need to go to the building." to be church. Well, no, we don't. The church building has never, you you don't need a building to be the body of Christ. And I think that something that was lost in Catholic theology, Catholic sacramental theology and ecclesiology, is that in the middle ages, when people talked about the body of Christ, they were not referring to the Eucharist. There is sacramental theology where people talked about the body of the Christ as the Eucharist, yes. But, But the body of Christ as a phrase, occurs more in ecclesiology than it does in sacramental theology, that is discussions of what is church. And so I think the Black Death made people think about that question a lot more. It seems to me that we are all at home right now, could be closer to the broken body of Christ than when we're standing next to people in a church because we're not distracted by the building. We're not distracted by this notion that if I'm not in a building, I'm not in the church. And so this could actually be a rather rich teachable moment. What happened is that in the 16th century when the various Protestant reformers came along and there were different notions, the bread and wine are not transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Or in Lutheran theology, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, but only when the community is gathered and therefore there is no real abiding presence and therefore there's no need for a tabernacle. Um, or um, as some other Protestants say, the bread and wine never stopped being the bread and wine. They are s- simply a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus. And so Catholic sacramental theology and ecclesiology doubled down that all of the discussions of the body of, uh, body of Christ were about bread and wine, not about the people. And so you have a recovery here that I think could take place. Uh, you know, Lumen Gentium in Vatican II talks very much about, about the people of God and the body of Christ being the people of God. And so this really is, is a moment where we can kind of think about those notions and maybe learn from them those notions. And I should say here, reminded that I'm a church historian who does theology. I am not a theologian. Um, church history and theology, like justice and mercy, should kiss more often than they do. But the, but ecclesiology especially goes together, I think, in this moment. And I think that's what people are missing, who are objecting to gathering gathering together. The other thing that I find rather distressing, just in my own community, reading Facebook posts and things like that, um, are, are, are people who are saying that it's, it's somehow wrong, or it's somehow... E- uh, egotistical for your local priest to um, broadcast uh, mass, right, which I think a lot of local priests are doing. And someone said, you know, why are they doing that? We have EWTN. Well, there are different ways of worshiping. And the way that EWTN worships may not be the way that you care to worship, and vice versa. So to me, more is better at this point. You know, if, if, if people can can encounter the Eucharist, or, or or praying the Angelus with with um, uh, with Pope Francis, you know, or 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 viewing his Mass every morning um, from the chapel where he lives. So I think that it, it this is an opportunity to get creative.
0: So as a historian I imagine you're just going through life in general and seeing things happening on a societal level and making connections and, and parallels and so what what do you think like the as a historian like at this time you've mentioned a number of these parallels you've seen and, and connections that you're making um, what perspective does it give you? Um, How does it, how has it colored your response to this? How does it affect how you're feeling or or what you're thinking about uh, in this time? Any kind of like last thoughts about like as a historian uh, approaching this time?
1: Well, I'm an historian, not a prophet. I I don't know how this is going to turn out, but it seems to me that history is always going to help us to realize that things like this are not entirely unprecedented. The specific ways, you know, if there had been social distancing and if there had been social media to tell people to separate. Maybe the Black Death wouldn't have been um, so bad, but it, it certainly seems to me that, that this is a moment where uh, history and science really need to come together. We need to be making decisions based on data and not on wish lists. Uh, it's an interesting moment where faith and reason are not mutually exclusive, which was something that the Middle Ages did beautifully, um, married faith and reason. Uh, these two things that are often put in opposition, which I think are being put in opposition um, uh, today.
0: I always love uh, connecting, Chris, and I love hearing uh, your energy, excitement around this, your your vision. Uh, I, I do want to let folks know they can, encounter you in other ways as well if they're if they're interested uh, your most recent book ageless wisdom lifetime lessons from the bible from paul's press which is i'm sure available uh where where books are are sold uh, religious books are sold uh, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes you also write uh out in other places and do audio stuff do you anything else you want to uh, let folks know about
1: well I, i'm a little frustrated right because i give about 25 to 30 uh talks a year and obviously that's going to be down this year so I've been asking myself, you know, what, what can I do in this in this situation? Um, and I've recorded some pod- podcasts for a company called Learn25. Um, and they are uh, putting those podcasts um, up at very, like, $10, $15, $20 for a, tw- for a 15, 20 segment cost. Um, so it might be a good time to learn some history. And I would humbly say that if you read some books on uh, church reform, as I've written, Uh, And as my colleagues have done now, maybe this is an opportunity to uh, to learn a bit more about the church's past um, so that we can plot a better future.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Chris. And uh, stay safe and healthy and all the best to to your family. And And uh, to yours. Yeah, thank you. Look forward to connecting, hopefully in a um, more cheerful environment uh, (laughs) next, next time we talk.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeA Drop us an email with questions or comments at Media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as Saint Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.